to the second season of Change Voices, the podcast where we explore the challenges, the successes and the lessons of leadership through the experience of women leaders across Africa and beyond. I'm your host, Paula Frey. In this episode, we will explore digital technology and the gender divide, privacy, data protection, and even gender-based violence, as well as what needs to be done in terms of policy in order to unlock innovation and investment. Our guest, Shanae Chair, is a special advisor on the Africa Marathi Innovation at Mozilla Foundation. She is an expert on the intersection of digital technology and gender and currently supports the implementation of the Common Voice African Languages work at Mozilla, an open source data set to support voice technology interventions. She has extensive experience, which draws on principles of feminism in accessing um, digital technology, and she will say some of that with us today. So welcome, Shanae. Thank you for having me, Paula. So Shanae, you know, a few spaces are as critical as where you're sitting today. Um, yet it's often seen as a very unwelcoming space for women. Um, what set you on the path of digital technology? Um it's so interesting because I'm a social scientist by background, uh, you know, with a sociology degree from the University of Cape Town. And what set me on this background was really a matter of curiosity. So I wasn't going to be found in a computer lab because, um, you know, like coding the system because it wasn't as welcoming. But because I was a curious social scientist and connected to two amazing um, lecturers who were at the University of Cape Town, who guided me into asking, you know, an initial question of how do mobile phones impact women? And I was someone who was using a mobile phone. I hadn't thought about that kind of social impact. And then as I went down the rabbit hole, I realized that a lot of the tech questions and a lot of the digital technology things that had been implemented required a list of that either agenda framing or more unpacking from a research perspective in order to influence policy. But we, I had just engaged myself as an end user without actually realizing that with my social science uh, background, I could actually influence discourse around digital technology innovations, the research, the policy, and even the tech developments that were being done themselves. So I found that, you know, my curiosity paid off and I found the right kind of people who were guiding me, who were able to then point out that you don't necessarily have to have come out of a, you know, a tech development lab for you to actually have an influence in the space. But because you care about how it impacts other people, you can actually then build up the way you understand technology. We're going to talk about your research later on, um, where you actually unpack the challenges that women have. But I'm interested now in your personal challenges. So when you shift into this field, what are the challenges you suddenly encounter? Uh, okay, so I think the challenges are mirrored, right? They are a lot. So, so I always start by looking at myself as a feminist Black woman who's Zimbabwean, staying in South Africa, engaging in a global space. So I already have that like intersectional identity on marginalized points where when you enter into a room as a young black woman, a lot of the times mm. you're either going to find people who are not going to listen to you or they're going to listen to you and go like, oh, sweet, she has some points, but they don't take you seriously, right? And then you're also going to be navigating a global space with its own 
racial um, dynamics, which mean that you're not just dealing with like um, entering into into an African space where there is the age dynamics in play, but now you're entering into space where there is the race dynamic in play, where it's kind of like, you know, people wondering if you can speak so well on a particular issue Mm. or being asked to be the token representative at the table. Because a lot of the times is like, you know, claim you sit at the table, but the, the question is, how is that table structured to support you as you enter into this space? Well, I think another layer is just really thinking about it again, um, how my background as a social scientist also impacts how I interact in this space. Because a lot of the times when we focus about on the women in tech, a lot of the conversations seem to segregate the women who have the technical background in terms of developing solutions and a, you know, a bachelor's in computer sciences versus the women who actually work on policy and research with the humanities background who are there not as considered as part of the ecosystem. Yet both of us in conversation have a big influence on how issues are developed and are able to influence each other in terms of the positions we take on the things that need to be addressed, right? I might not know the technical uh, solution, but I do know the social layer that it's going to be developed into. Um, And I think another thing is just really finding a community. Like one of the challenges for me um, was trying to find a community of like-minded women and queer people and particular feminists because a lot of the times you know I was navigating a space where when you think about gender intake it was about give every woman a pink phone pink phones are beautiful I'm not slandering them but it was seen as if we work on the aesthetics that's the way that we get women to make use of mobile devices and then you also find that you need a community of people who are quite critical about these interventions and the ideas that are being put in play because most of the time um, you know as the interventions come they're actually just helping a business model for people to succeed without taking into account the social norms of what it means to operate in a gender dynamic in this space. And I think lastly, also as a feminist recognizing my privilege, I think that's a big barrier in terms of like, you know, there's an assumption that because I'm a black woman, I can speak for all black women whose experiences mm-hmm. with digital tech. But the reality is that I'm a privileged woman who went to the University of Cape Town. I also ex- experience, you know, like a difference in the way that I'm excluded in spaces. Mm-hmm. But I cannot speak for every woman who, you know, experiences technology mm-hmm. and the difference in issues in terms, say, for example, access and how unaffordable it is to women, particularly because of the kinds of jobs they occupy and the limited levels of education that they often uh, face. So these are these are some of like the barriers that I've had to navigate within, mm-hmm. within the space. I want to pick up later on the whole issue of vitamin access for rural women, particularly. And I think also the huge impact that COVID has had. I think, you know, yes, many more people are going online now, but we also know that there's a greater digital divide than ever before. I mean, as a journalist, I'm, I'm watching media, credible media, go behind a paywall. And, 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 and so even as people get access to the internet, um, the internet suddenly becomes something that they have to pay for. But I want to go back to something that you were saying. You know, when you shifted from um, sociology to really think about the technology, you, you were a, a phone user, but not necessarily kind of thinking of, of what it could do. Uh, did your relationship with your phone change, right? I mean, did you become more demanding of the technology and, and the regulatory framework around it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's changed. I found myself um, purchasing a new phone recently and going like, 
I'm really concerned about the privacy. So I want to make sure that the privacy settings make sense. And, you know, that's something that is so interesting because before I would have been like, you know, does it take great pictures and does the radio system work? And again, it's important for me to ask those questions. But that dynamic really changed. And I think also, you know, being able to explore the functionality of the device. A lot of the research say, um, Research ICT Africa a while back found that a lot of people who were making use of the internet were actually really contained on Facebook platforms, right? And that was more so an issue around affordability and a lot of the content is still concentrated there. So you can find all your news, all your gossip, all your latest um, entertainment on that particular platform. But with a sense of, um, you know, knowing more about technology and knowing more about the way in which it's all is designed, for me, it's a matter of then pushing to get out of that particular platform because of the way in which it's designed to keep people there, mm-hmm. right? It's not just like a, oh, this is where all the easy information is. It's also part of the development of, of the platform it's, itself. Mm-hmm. And really thinking about how it's not just people talking. Like, I think a lot of the times people just go like, it's just social media. But actually just realizing the harms that happen. And the more and more you consume that content and stay on that platform, Mm. um, even if you're a critical thinker, it is likely to impact you in a particular way. So you either have to find a platform where you can curate the type of content you get, or you just have to make sure that it's your, you know, accessing it beyond that particular space. But we all know the conversations that have been had about the way in which these platforms and devices are actually designed for people to stay onto them. And then now you have to think about like your digital wellness in terms of like turning off your device, Mm. putting in these, which have now started getting built into devices, but before those things weren't there. Yeah. I mean, I was looking today, uh, just in today's news, you know, the whole um, um, meta, um, um, the value on, on, on the stock exchange really dropping quite dramatically, actually. And, and you're just thinking about um, the options that are available for users in terms of where they get the information, who's framing the information and which devices lead them um, um, to certain bits of information. But I probably I, I want to move away from that and 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 just just ask you so so these conversations I mean very often we're not having them won't you take it some time Shanai just to describe your view of the current digital ecosystem what are the challenges that we're actually facing here the current challenges that we face especially with you know with what's happened with COVID uh, with the pandemic is for a very long time we've always had an issue around um inequality that is offline playing out in the online space. So there's that mirroring effect. It's not really that different. So what you find, access is still a big thing on the African continent overall. South Africa does lead in terms of, I think, over half the population having access to the internet and you know a large number of people having mobile devices. But at the end of the day, when it, um, a large number of African countries still are impacted by people actually having access to the internet. And this is like having personal ownership of a device and going online every day at a time that pleases them. You still have faced issues around affordability. Quite recently, um, I was reading about how Zimbabwe's internet is still very expensive. It was considered one of the most expensive across the African continent. And it has maintained being expensive despite us being in a pandemic and most countries putting into place policies that would see the internet becoming cheaper for people to access and, you know, social programs for people to have access to devices. And this was done in South Africa that we saw for for universities. Um, And then when you move 
at the access level, there's also um, beyond access or after access. Like this work has been done by organizations such as Research ICT Africa that have done the research and understanding what happens when people come online. And the challenges there are really what um, Dr. Alison Gilward calls a digital inequality paradox, where you find that people who actually are online have different experiences as based on like their level of understanding of the space, um, their access to their level of education, their background, who they connect with in these spaces. So we enter into the realm of what we call digital rights. So in this instance, the concerns that we have are around surveillance and people actually maintaining their right to privacy. Uh, we have issues around data leakages and that data being protected, like to what extent do we have data protection implementations in place? Then we also have the issues and challenges emerging with uh, technology such as artificial intelligence, you know, the algorithms that govern the platforms and how these algorithms are often designed from like big tech spaces like a European or North American context in mind, and then get transplanted into an African continent where they basically miss the whole context and it's problematic. Um, and then you also have the experiences around like access to information where some information sites are considered problematic. So people won't have access to the information that is relevant. I think in particular thinking about like having access to sex education for young kids, um, for, for people generally, or having access to information that's relevant for like the LGBTIQ community and it being banned in other countries because it's still a criminalized act. Um, and then I think... Uh, it's significantly, you know, right now we've got information and misinformation and disinformation. So that aspect around like the kind of content that people are consuming, whether it is true, whether it's just misinformation that someone just like, you know, put the wrong details and it, it's a genuine error or disinformation, like intentionally putting out wrong information to sway people into a particular narrative. And there is a gendered aspect to that disinformation, which is so big, which, you know, I think I remember going on a call initially with a feminist community and people were talking about when COVID started, there was a lot of disinformation that it was as a result of the queer people on the continent. And you can just imagine the kind of reaction it would have in a society that, that disregards this community. Mm. Um, and then you also think about specifically gendered disinformation around election period targeting women, mm. targeting journalists, and you just realize a lot of it is focused on the sexualization or sexual acts that mm. people, whether they engage in them or not, it's none of our business, but that is used as a means to discredit because, you know, society has a particular view on the way in which people should behave. Yeah. And largely um, online safety. So mm. online safety, thinking really about the way in which um you know, people are experienced online harassment to online violence. So people either through means of being stalked, uh, your private information being published online for people then to come after you, which is considered doxing, which is called doxing, or the sharing of non-consensual intimate images, which either might have been shared when you were still intimate in a partnership relationship with a person, and then they're now being used maliciously. Like people call it revenge porn, but you know, feminists have been working for us for a lot to say, let's call it non-consensual intimate mm. image sharing because porn has its own language and place mm. that exists when it comes to like pleasure for people. So then labeling it that makes it seem as if, it, you know, it's like a pleasurable aspect to this revenge place that's happening. Yeah. And also seeing it take place in um, intimate, intimate partner violence as well. 
Yeah. You know, Shana, you, you spoke about um, how the internet actually reflects these real-world inequalities, but it also sometimes feels like it amplifies um, misogyny, it amplifies, um, uh, you, you know, um, um, people's stereotypes and, and their discrimination against others. Um, and, and the issue you're talking about now against um, violence against women, we know, for example, from our own research, is that even though both male and female journalists um, are um, face harassment online, the harassment of women is very often sexualized. Um, and, and, and that the harassment very often is amplified by virtue of them being women with an opinion or a profile on social media. Um, and, 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 and so when we look at the internet, it's this, this kind of, this, you know, this world of great opportunities, but also... Um, Many many challenges. I want you to though, before 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 we move away from that, talk about the widening gap um, and and its impact on rural women. Um, how would you improve access for rural women? You know that's a million dollar question, and I feel like millions <laughs> have been thrown at this question. <laughs> and now the question is: To what extent has it been? You know, has it shifted mm-hmm. things? So a lot of times when I think about like closing the the, the, the the that rural urban gap, particularly for women who are in rural areas. A lot of the conversation is when we've done research to try to understand why um, women and men are not in the rural areas are not making use of, um, you know, like the, the digital devices. A lot of the times it also has to do with who has access to disposable income for them to be able to have mm-hmm. access to buy the actual device and the affordability of the airtime that's needed to access the internet. Uh, you know, the last mile connectivity to rural areas is still difficult. A lot of the solutions that have been put in place has actually been um, community networks. So Zenzeleni Community Network is one of the initiatives in South Africa where they've gone and set up um, a community-owned um, rural internet mobile connectivity or internet connectivity so that people can have access to it and address some of the issues involved with people um, having access to devices. So you have that at that connectivity level. Then you have the social constructs around accessing to the, you know, accessing the devices and constantly being on your phone. I remember once doing a research and um, someone mentioned that like they don't use their phone as often because it actually leads to domestic violence within their house in the rural areas because their partner would then say, what are you doing on your phone? Uh, you know, something malicious. And then they decided for the sake of peace, they're actually just not going to go on a device. Mm. So again, that's another social context nuance around it. Then there's an issue of digital literacy, people actually Mm. being able to understand um, the use of their devices, right? And and this is a matter of... um, you know, demystifying what it is that you can do on your mobile phone. Because obviously, if someone, mm-hmm. I, if I get shocked at my mobile phone being able to, to you know, to pick, bring up a sitch that I spoke about in conversation, everyone is going to be super shocked. And, going, and then I know, so I know what it means. So I don't, you know, I, I, I can address the issue, but someone else is going to be concerned. And you need to demystify you know, what happens with the devices. And I think another thing is also encouraging peer-to-peer learning. And this is work that was has been done before by other feminists where they realize that if you take the model of digital or people, digital literacy to women where it's a matter, then they hold the knowledge in society. It does shift the relationship to, to tech devices. When you look though at the challenges across the continent, um, is this a priority? 
is the digital space a priority? You know, I mean, if you look at all of the global um, protocols, the agreements, etc., the domestication is lacking, um, right? I mean, how serious do, do governments take um, the internet and the digital space? Oh, they do. Oh, but it's so interesting. They take it seriously in terms of, you know, like when we're thinking about benchmarking countries, everybody wants to be able to say, and thinking about the International Telecommunications Union and the benchmarking on access to actually say, we've improved access and everybody has is able to have connection to the internet. So most, uh, most of the governments actually do collect st- stats on levels of mobile uptake, internet uptake, but the challenge is that data is often not um, sex disaggregated. So we don't know the extent to which it's mm-hmm. men or women in the way that they access these issues. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And then another part that they take it seriously is they take it seriously and consider it a problematic space by the extent to which we see internet shutdowns and surveillance mm-hmm. happening on these platforms. So um, oftentimes you do find that the, um, well, there's what, what's called a uh, keep it on campaign that maps the extent to which internet shutdowns are happening across the globe. Um, and oftentimes the argument is national security. So we want to keep people safe. So we're going to shut down mm-hmm. the internet. Um, close to election period, a consistent monitor, monitoring against election shutdowns. And so then you find that um, there is a, there is a love for people to get connected and a hate relationship of no, now too many people have access to information, so we've got to shut it down. So that's sort of like the the, the dynamic that you see when it comes to governments and their positions um, on on the internet and digital access. So then what should civil society be doing? So um, civil society has been doing quite a lot of work within like the digital rights community where it really has been tracking and researching and documenting all of the actions and policies that are put in place by governments um, to see then how they're actually implemented. Because, you know, there's one layer of writing everything up, but to what extent is it being implemented? So there's that monitoring mechanism that's in place. But there's also engagement within policy spaces. So, for example, the point that I raised of participating in the um, public consultations for the domestic violence um, bill that was being tabled last year, there's a need for civil society to actually be in these spaces but I do want to highlight that being in these spaces is actually not easy. It's not just like waking up and then going down and putting in a submission. It actually does require a lot of like collaborative action with civil society, those who know how to write the papers, pulling together the people who work with the, with the communities that are going to be impacted so that it's it's something that is a collaborative process, not just someone who's going like, I know this is a point of intervention and it's going to work, but they actually are speaking from a place of not fully understanding context. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also... Currently, there's a lot of need for research to action, like really building up the evidence that's necessary to understand how the space is designed and how it's impacting communities, and then actually using that evidence to hold um, you know, particular organizations accountable that are doing interventions around the digital space, but also to empower communities to actually know what their digital rights are and know how they can actually, you know, get support when they face something. Because a lot of times I think people go like, oh, my data has been put up online. Now what am I going to do? But, you know, there's actually um, an information regulator that people can reach out to. You know, whether they act on it, that's a different story. But the fact that, you know, we can then be able to document that people are actually putting out things to the information regulator and 
a lot of times data breaches were happening in South Africa and we would only know six months later. And sometimes your bank would let you know or they wouldn't let you know. But I think when these things happen, civil society actually has a role to cause a stink in it. The way that we, you know, we raised issues around data must fall. It's another conversation that we need to raise around data breaches, um, for example, as they happen in the country and globally on the continent. Yeah, and more strength to you, Shanae. Um, um, I, I really feel like we've just kind of begun to scratch the, the, the surface with this conversation that we could certainly be, um, that there's a lot more that we could be unpacking and, and, and talking about. But hopefully we encourage more women to start uh, speaking about um, um, digital technologies and really to be speaking about the issues that have a, a real impact on our lives um, and that we're not necessarily thinking of every day. I want to say... Uh, unfortunately brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank you, Shanae Chair, for joining us for this really insightful discussion of digital safety. We've spoken privacy, the digital divide, gender-based violence, and most importantly, what we can do in order to make a difference. Um, we hope that examining these issues from the, these perspectives was really useful for you, the listener, as always, thank you for listening to Change Voices. Remember to rate the podcast on your favorite platform and to share it with other leaders um, and join us next time when we continue to explore the technology ecosystem and the leadership challenges and opportunities it presents. Shanae, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me.